Amen. The life of Jesus in the New Testament is preceded by shadows of Jesus in the Old Testament. The life of Jesus in the New Testament is preceded by shadows of Jesus in the Old Testament. Shadows of Christ's life are found all over the place. Shadows of Christ's life are even found in the life of David. And in book one, we have seen a score of psalms from David. And we have noticed how David is a suffering king. David as a suffering king is going to be really crucial to the way in which David's life shadows the Lord Jesus. The disciples, like Peter, expected a king who would throw off the shackles of Rome. A king that would bring political deliverance. A king that would crush all of God's enemies. And yet, on the first day of the week, Jesus comes riding on a donkey into Jerusalem to the cry, Hosanna to the Son of David. And not everybody is happy to hear that. On Monday of Passion Week, He goes into the temple in Jerusalem and He overturns tables and chairs and He drives out buyers and sellers. And this would have been an outrageous action in the Jerusalem temple. But on Tuesday, he returns to the temple and he teaches daily there and he welcomes questioners and he hears their objections and yet he refutes their attempts to ensnare him and he overcomes with surpassing wisdom all of their cleverness that they thought would embarrass him in public. He demonstrates surpassing wisdom and cleverness Far beyond what they had expected. He teaches with authority and answers their questions in ways that confound those who sought to confound him. On Wednesday, Judas agrees to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And on Thursday evening, the disciples and Jesus eat a meal together, the Last Supper. And what Jesus says to them is unlike anything a host for a Passover meal had ever said before. Jesus doesn't start talking about the Exodus with Moses. He doesn't start interpreting elements, talking about Egypt and the deliverance through that mighty Red Sea. Jesus doesn't start talking about the past. He starts talking about the future. He starts talking about his own body and his own blood and what he is going to do. And nobody in the room that night had ever eaten a Passover meal like that. And then after they leave, they sing a hymn together and they head toward the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas has already left the group and Peter had already been told this very night, you will betray me. He takes a few disciples to go further into the Gethsemane region where he will pray and goes further alone still. And after a time, after his resolve to do the will of God, not my will, but yours be done, he professes, he returns to his sleeping and wavering disciples. They are not prepared for the hour. The troops arrive with the capital police and with those from the temple guard who come ready to take him away in captivity. They arrest the Son of God and they go through a series of trials, both Jewish and Roman. Leading up to a declaration early in the hours of Friday morning that Jesus will be condemned by crucifixion because the Jews believe he's a blasphemer and they convince Pilate, at least to a degree Pilate's willing to concede it, that Jesus is a political nuisance to be dealt with. Pilate is ready to wash his hands of this. Give the crowd what they want and they want him crucified. 
At 9 a.m. on Friday morning, Jesus is crucified. And over the ensuing hours, he hangs between two others on crosses who actually were insurrectionists and political seditious people. Jesus was not one like that. And in the middle on the cross, Jesus hangs. And until noon, the day seems bright and brighter still. But at noon, an unusual darkness settles over the land, and for three hours, a supernatural event of darkness at midday takes place. must have seemed quite unnerving, quite foreboding. And if the religious leaders were convinced that Jesus was no threat to them, I wonder what would go through their mind when this begins to take place. Nearby in the temple itself, Passover lambs are going to be slaughtered. And it's no coincidence that during the slaughtering of these lambs, Jesus, the Passover lamb, hangs crucified on Passover. On the, at 3 p.m., he cries out, it is finished. And he gives his spirit to the Father because this work of the Son of God on the cross was fulfillment. It was a fulfillment of a mission from the foundation of the world. David, in the Psalms, is a suffering king. And those on the sides of the cross that day, the onlookers in Jerusalem, would no doubt have been quick to conclude if this man dies under the clutches of Rome, he's a disqualified Messiah. But they would see, through the light of later teaching and time that unfolded, that the layout of Jesus' life would not be instantaneous overthrowing of all of his enemies, but to first and foremost die as a substitutionary sacrifice for sinners. That David's life as a suffering king typifies or shadows the suffering king on the cross. We read Psalms where the writer is in deep distress and affliction. And then we read descriptions where Jesus embodies and fulfills these ideas in an escalated way. The Psalms of David are ultimately the Psalms of Christ. On the cross... What does Jesus quote from again and again when he says, my God, my God, why why have you forsaken me? Or language like, I thirst. Or language, into your hands I commit my spirit. Over and over again. These are from Psalms. And over and over again, Psalms of David. Why is Jesus on the cross quoting the Psalms of David? Because these Psalms weren't ultimately for David. David pins these psalms. They are laments of affliction and distress, but they're preparing the way for a greater suffering king. The Lord Jesus fulfills the divine will to satisfy divine justice. And on the cross, Jesus is not experiencing the blessing and favor of God. He's instead enduring the curse and judgment of God. The cross is an altar of sacrifice. It is no place of comfort. It is a place of sorrow and grief. Where our sins are counted to the head of Christ. As we think about the glory of Good Friday, we're going to do so tonight through the lens of these six verses of Psalm 13. The book of Psalms contains all kinds of songs where a psalmist is calling for help from the Lord. Something to know about Psalm 13. This is the shortest psalm in the whole book of Psalms that calls upon God for help. And this short psalm, six verses, is broken down nicely into three parts. In verses 1 and 2, questions about how long. In verses 3 and 4, a call for God to do something, to answer. And in verses 5 and 6, the resolve of the psalmist, his confidence. The confidence of the psalmist in God's deliverance. To the choir master, a psalm from David 
begins with these questions in verses 1 and 2. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? David is in a circumstance that is not identified with any clarity. We don't know the details of David's enemies here. We don't know how much of this is external circumstance, bodily affliction, some combination of all the above. But this question, how long, appears four times in two verses. It's quite a lot in a small amount of space. How long, O Lord? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul? How long shall my enemy be exalted? Four times asking for God to do something. This is not a question about whether God will. I think David's questions here are prompted by what he knows to be true of God. That God vindicates his people. That God overcomes his enemies. And so the question is not whether, but merely how long. How long? It would be a mistake, I think, to see these questions as coming from some kind of heart of unbelief. Or that David is asking these questions from some kind of rebellion. It's because of what he knows of God and his confidence in God's righteous judgment and his covenant faithfulness that David knows it's not a matter of whether, but simply a matter of when. So how long? How long, O Lord? David is calling upon God. His eyes turn to God. And he says, will you forget me forever? Now, this is an overstatement. He knows God has not forgotten him. He's praying to the God who is Lord of all heaven and earth. But David feels the sorrow and grief very keenly here. So this question, will you forget me forever? It's not a question of rebellion, but a question that from David's heart longs for something to shift. He wants something new. See, he wants what he's dealing with now to give way to something that is restoration. Something that feels like resurrection and vindication if David is in the very clutches of death itself. Will you forget me forever? He is calling upon God with this question to act on behalf of God's own promises. For God to remember his covenant means to act on promises. And David is praying, Lord, let's not see what would look like forgetfulness. Let's see what looks like remembrance. So in other words, Lord, may your covenant faithfulness be demonstrated. Let's see that steadfast love, O Lord. Lord, how long? This is not a question then of rebellion. David is confident in God, but David doesn't know what God knows. So he simply asks, how long? This third question, how long will you hide your face from me, is not a question far off from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When you look at the words of Psalm 22, there seems to be some conceptual overlap with Psalm 13 already. Lord, why or how long? And in this case, with the third question, how long will you hide your face from me? Why is this language of the face brought up here? In our journey through book one of the Psalms, I've turned over and over again to Numbers chapter six as a source of various allusions. And in number 6, 24 to 26, the priests were to bless the people with grand epic words. They would say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his, here's the word, make his face to shine upon you 
and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And in Psalms 1 to 12, multiple allusions to number 6 can be noted. In Psalm 4, David says, be gracious to me. He says in Psalm 4, verse 6, lift up the light of your face upon us. In Psalm 5, 12, you bless the righteous, Lord, you cover him with favor. Psalm 6, 2, be gracious to me. Psalm 9, 13, be gracious to me. Psalm 11, 7, the upright will behold his face. So you have this language about being gracious, language about God's favor, language about the light of God's face, language of beholding God's face. David is praying because he knows the Bible. David is influenced by the earlier priestly blessing upon the people of Israel. And you know what David doesn't experience in Psalm 13? He doesn't see or discern an experience that looks like the shining of God's face. So he says... With this third question, how long will you hide your face? He's longing for the shining of God's face that brings peace, shalom, graciousness. He's praying for mercy. Lord, don't hide your face. How long is that going to be? Shine your face. I want to behold your face. Don't hide your face. Because to hide the face of God, for God to hide his face from his people, is language of alienation. It's language that be, would be the result of some kind of judgment. So David says, well, let that not be the case. Be gracious to me. Light up my face. He says in verse 2, how long must I take counsel in my soul? This is the fourth question. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? Taking counsel in his soul, I think, refers to some kind of inward wrestling over things. He's got a lot of thoughts, a lot of thoughts going through him, feeling that inner conflict and daily sorrow. How often is his torment? He has sorrow in his heart all the day. That sounds pretty frequent to me. So got sorrow in the heart. That's deep. Got sorrow all the day. That is constant. And David's inner wrestling here, taking counsel in his soul and having this experience. He says, how long will I take counsel in my soul? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? That's the fourth and final question. In verse 2, how long shall my enemy be exalted? From David's perspective, he doesn't look around his situation and see triumph. But this is the mystery of God's redemptive plan. Because the glory of the cross is that from a worldly perspective, it does not look like triumph. It looks like humiliating defeat. For the Lord to part the Red Sea in the book of Exodus was preceded by a panicking people who saw no way out of their predicament. And yet the Lord is glorified that in human weakness, divine power is demonstrated. That in the humiliated situation of the Israelites or in the humiliating spectacle of a cross... The power of God is displayed, penetrating human wisdom in the display of something redemptive, something divine. These kinds of questions of how long are no stranger to the people of God. People ask how long, O Lord, about all sorts of things. Maybe they're facing relational pain in their family or friendships. Maybe physical affliction and sickness has plagued them and they say how long. Economic hardship may have hit them. 
Some kind of uncertainty about the future that overwhelms them. Some kind of agonies that they have a hard time articulating and yet the burden seems to abide and they say, how long? We know the feeling of this question. And David was no stranger to it. And in four different ways, he poses it. David's sorrow is in a circumstance that looks like the apparent defeat, uh, the apparent triumph of the wicked. Because he says, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? So here's the king of Israel. And if you're the king of Israel, you are anticipating that with your trust in God's covenant faithfulness and with your identity as the people of Israel in the land of promise, that the enemies of God are not going to get the better of you. David's question is surprising. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? It looks as if the wicked have triumphed. But this again gives us Old Testament lenses to see the mysterious and powerful working of God through the cross of Christ. That as the Romans look upon the cross with triumph and as the Jews rejoice, those who have declared crucify him, crucify him. It looks as if the wicked have triumphed. David in verses 3 to 4 calls upon God to answer. He says, consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. He gives three calls here. Consider, that's number one. Answer, that's number two. Light up my eyes, that's number three. He calls upon the Lord to do three things. Consider means to look, to look. And to consider or to look is appropriate if he said earlier, how long are you going to hide your face? Look, Lord. Don't hide your face. I want you to look upon my situation. Because he knows if God's face will shine upon him, the result will be different than the apparent triumph of the wicked. Rather, God will be glorified in the vindication of his people and the subduing of his enemies. So he says, look, Lord, consider me. Answer me. So not only, Lord, are you going to turn to me, you're going to respond to me after that. Look upon me and answer me, O Lord my God. What would an answer for David look like? Well, the answer for David looks like the vanquishing of the enemies of God and the deliverance of David from death. That's what it would look like. In fact, David David must feel pretty close to the end here because of the third call for God to act. He says, Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. And this language is quite strong because David, as a suffering king, must be getting quite close to where he says, Lord, I'm not seeing a way through this. And, 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 and what I need for you to do, God, is to look upon me, to answer me, and to bring the light of your face upon me. Because if God's face shines upon David, it will light up David's eyes as a result. When he says here in verse 3, light up my eyes, light up my eyes from what? From God, from God's own face. The, 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 the glory of God's redeeming hand and the strength of his rescuing grace would be upon David. And you know the effect that'll have for David? It will lighten his eyes. It will illuminate him. And he says, Lord, do this. Look upon me, consider me. Answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes. All of this, I think, is another allusion to number six. David is praying that the priestly blessing upon the Israelites will be on him in this unique circumstance. That the face and favor of God would bring light and deliverance and peace. 
lest I sleep the sleep of death. He must sense this impending death and showing how serious his distress is. Now the sleep of death names here, I think, death by implication in verse 4. My enemy doesn't just have to be some political adversary, though that might be the means of David's demise. My enemy here could be a way of saying death itself would speak. Sleeping the sleep of death would mean David succumbs to the enemy, which would be death itself ultimately. Not just political adversaries, but if they get the better of David, if they defeat Israel's king, then David's body is now in the cords of corruption. David's body is now subdued in the grave. The triumph of David's enemies also will mean the triumph of death. They're not going to spare the king. They're going to kill the king. And probably in a grand spectacle do so. Because that would demonstrate their superiority as some kind of adversary of Israel. So David doesn't want to sleep the sleep of death. He doesn't want to die. Lest his enemies say, I've prevailed over him. You know, David doesn't want this circumstance to result in the enemies of God having a ground for boasting. Think about what the ground of boasting would be. If they get the better of David, if the king of, if the king of Israel is destroyed, and here you have the, the one who is anointed of God overcome and the enemies of God prevail, then they will boast and rejoice of their victory. Because defeating the king of Israel is a way of saying we've overcome the God of Israel. We've took out his king. We've invaded the land. We have come against the people and we've prevailed. So David is saying, Lord, let my enemy have no ground for boasting. Don't let them get to a place where they can say, I've prevailed over David. Lest my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. David doesn't want to be shaken to a point where he is overthrown. His foes will not just declare that they've prevailed. They will delight in it. Oh, they will be doing a leaping, jumping dance all around the place. If they can get David to stagger and collapse, they will burst forth with shouts of victory. Those, the foes of David, will rejoice. Looking at David's call upon God in verses 3 and 4 is grounded in his confidence. The questions that open Psalm 13 are questions based on David's view and confidence in God. Not whether God will deliver, but when. He says in verses 5 through 6, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. David is not saying this because everything has resolved. He says, I have trusted... So he's, he is speaking about what he has done. I am looking to God. That is what I have done and am doing. And my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. David's experience in Psalm 13 at the moment is distress. How long, O oh Lord? You've hidden your face. Shine upon me. Light up my eyes. And David says that while right now doesn't look like the scene for rejoicing, he knows he will. I will rejoice. He says, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. What's in his heart right now? Well, um, sorrow all the day. That's what verse 2 says. So, you know, David's heart, it is right now one particular way. I've got sorrow in my heart all the day. David says, I don't believe that's going to stay that way. I don't believe it will. 
Because I know that God keeps His promises. He has covenant, steadfast love. He will vindicate His people. He will overthrow His enemies. He says, my heart is filled with sorrow all the day. You know what's in store is joy in my heart. That's what's coming. Joy in my heart. I will rejoice in my heart in your deliverance, your salvation. I have trusted in your steadfast love. David is responding to what he knows God has revealed. Steadfast love is covenant language. Where has God made covenant promises? Well, in the early scriptures, which David knows, God has made promises to the people of God. He has spoken about his commitment to the line of David and ultimately to raise up a son from David's line, the Messiah. David's not neutral to any of that. He's not like, well, isn't that interesting that God has spoken things about the people of Israel and the line of my, uh, of my family, the family of David. He says, I respond by believing that. I'm trusting in it. Your steadfast love, O Lord, I'm responding with faith and therefore my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. He's confident in God, even though things right now are not what David wishes they were. Sorrow is in his heart, but his eyes are looking unto God. In verse 6, David believes that his rejoicing in verse 5 will result in praising God for deliverance. He says, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. David knows That the present hardship is not the only thing that's true. It is true, but it's not the only thing that's true. An illustration I give from time to time that fits here in Psalm 13 is when you hit your finger with something really hard and all of a sudden everything else fades away and you just hear that, feel that throbbing pain. I said here, you probably do as well. Hear it in your bones. It hurts so bad and you're just in that throbbing pain and all of your focus is just absorbed right there. Trials have a way of doing that in our lives, I think. Causing the narrow slice of the present to feel all-consuming. David is feeling sorrow in his heart all the day. And that is true. But it's not all that's true. Because the Christian life is a fight to trust in the Lord and to struggle for joy in God that means fighting for perspective. Fighting for perspective. That while David's trial is true, he says, you know what else I also know? When I stop and I think about the goodness of the Lord, He has dealt bountifully with me. Now when you deal bountifully with some, I love that word. I don't use the word bountifully. Psalm 13 makes me want to. Because when you deal bountifully, you're dealing with a lavish, generous way. This is not a miserly relationship David has with God. David's God, the God of heaven and earth, has not dealt with David in a sort of restricted, miserly way, but in a lavish way, showing goodness and patience and covenant love. So David says, all right, I'm in this hardship. That is true. But let me also know what I know to be true of the goodness of God. So David says, I'm going to sing to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord because everything is all of a sudden worked out. That is not what he says in verse 6. His praise to God is based in the goodness of God that David knows. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. 
You see, friends, the heart that trusts in God is a heart that praises God. A heart that is looking to God with faith is a heart that looks to express trust in God that even is in song. Rejoicing in the heart is fulfilled in proclaiming confidence and love for God in praise. You know, we do this when we gather. We should do this in the trials and difficulties of life. Turning to God, not just with trust, but with singing. What do we think the Psalms are? These are songs. What are the context of these songs to God written in? Not when everything's going well. The most frequent genre of psalm writing is lament. Looking to God, trusting in God, hoping in God, rejoicing in God. He says, I'll sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. When we look at Psalm 13... And we see that Jesus quotes from the Psalms on the cross. Jesus says in Psalm 22, 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if you read the rest of Psalm 22, you will see that this is a question spoken where on the cross is a demonstration of judgment and wrath. But in Psalm 22, the psalmist, who is also David, confesses his confidence in God of God's vindicating power. You've got to have all of Psalm 22 in mind. When we have Psalm 13 in mind, the language of how long reminds me of Psalm 22. Can't you picture Jesus on the cross? How long, O Lord? Can't you see him saying, Lord, consider me and answer me, O Lord my God, and light up my eyes. We know that in Psalm 13, David prays, Lord, do this, Lest I sleep the sleep of death. Now how will Jesus fulfill this psalm in an escalated way? He will not be kept from the sleep of death. He will not. He will not be spared from the sleep of death. But will suffer unto death. Divine will accomplishing divine salvation of sinners. By satisfying divine justice. The victory of the Lord Jesus will not be apart from the sleep of death. And for a time, the enemy will say, I have prevailed over him. The cords of death will seem to have overcome him. And his foes will rejoice over him. We are finally rid of Jesus of Nazareth. But Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane trusts in God. He trusts That where these psalms lead are not just that the king of Israel will suffer, but that the one who is king of the Jews and redeemer of the nations will suffer and be vindicated. David says here, I've trusted in your steadfast love and my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I tell you what's great about the greater son of David, the Lord Jesus, is his very name. You know, they, they said, the angel did to Mary and to Joseph, you will have a son and you will name him Jesus. For the Lord will deliver his people from their sins. He will save them. The name Jesus means Yahweh saves or is salvation. My heart will rejoice in your salvation. David is saying this and we recognize that Jesus' own name will fulfill all of what the delivering hand of God in the Old Testament foreshadows. Jesus is the salvation of God. Oh, you know, we should say with David, my heart will rejoice in your salvation. We just know that means our heart needs to rejoice in Jesus. That's rejoicing in the salvation of the Lord by looking to Jesus and trusting Him. 
I will sing to the Lord because he's dealt bountifully with me. Christ has slept the sleep, the sleep of death. His body died upon the cross. The Son of God, according to his human nature, suffers and dies. And he's buried in a tomb. And if Jesus has the Psalms upon his mind and coming from his mouth upon the cross, consider the wonder of Psalm 13.3. Answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes. Well, when will that happen? Not apart from death, but on the third day. Friends, on the third day and inside the tomb, the lightning of the eyes of Christ will take place. On the third day, the eyes of Christ will open in resurrection glory and vindication. Psalm 13 had a role to play in the life of the real David. But Psalm 13 takes on its greatest significance in the life, suffering, death, and resurrection of the real Jesus, the one who is the greater David. We remember on this Good Friday that on the hour of 3 p.m., the Lord Jesus dies. And that one named Joseph of Arimathea asks Pilate for the body of Jesus. And that Joseph of Arimathea takes the body of Jesus and cleans and wraps it appropriately. And with the help of Nicodemus, that earlier Pharisee from John 3, they take the body of Jesus, witnessed by the women, toward a tomb that was Joseph of Arimathea's family tomb. Joseph, being a rich man, had had this tomb carved out of rock, ready for each of his family members to occupy it upon their death. But at that point, no one from Joseph's family had died. It was an unused tomb. Jesus wouldn't need it for long, but he just needed it until the third day. And Joseph could have the whole thing back. But Jesus' body is buried there. And a stone is to seal it. And Roman guards will hours later be placed there. And when women go to this tomb, they go there expecting that the body that was placed there on Friday afternoon would have remained there. Because they know that when people die, they stay dead. Everybody knows that. Which was why it was so amazing when what happened on the third day did. Light up my eyes, David says. And when the Spirit of God answers that greater prayer, prayed all those many millennia earlier, not many, but a thousand years earlier before Christ, that prayer is answered when the Son of David opens His eyes in the tomb unto glory and vindication forevermore. The eyes of Christ light up my eyes, He prays. And the Lord hears the prayers of His beloved Son. Let's pray together.